You know it's going to be a good sermon when I need to draw cloth. (laughs) This week we are kind of correcting a flaw in my own thinking that I think God's been messing at me with me this week. And uh, um, as God does sometimes correct our thinking, I think it's, it's just a, a natural thing when we think about God, because we're thinking about God, we tend to kind of make God in our own image. We tend to project some of our own stuff onto God. And uh, I'm coming to realize that I do that with, my, with God sometimes too. See, I'm a pretty task-oriented person. Okay, I like projects, I like getting things done, um, and, and so sometimes I think I project that onto God, that God is very task-oriented, he's very project-oriented, he wants to get things done, and, and I want to say, I think God is like that. I, mean, I think God is clear in Scripture. God has plans, and God has purpose, and God has direction, and God has a future, but I think sometimes I, I have failed to realize, and, and maybe this is you too, that God isn't all obsessed with the destination the way I am. That God has something to say about the process, about the journey that you're on, and in particular about shaping us through the journey. That, that God can accomplish His purpose any number of ways, but He chooses to work through us, and maybe we should take that seriously. Think about if you were a sailor. We're we're in this series kind of looking at images of sailing. And and think about if you were a sailor and you had to go on a journey, a long journey across the Atlantic or or across the Pacific or around Europe or or wherever you had to go. Imagine how much you'd have to grow to go on that journey. First of all, you got to get your sea legs. How many of you, you ever gone sailing or you ever been out on big water? And, and what the problem is, the, the water moves, which means the boat moves. And uh, it's one thing to do that on a small lake. Okay, but if you've ever been out on a boat in the ocean, if you've ever been out on a boat, I, I've done some sailing on Lake Erie and on the bay, and it gets real choppy. And so the sailors talk about getting your sea legs. You ever hear that phrase? Like, got to sort of figure out how it will stand. You get adjusted to what's going on with the waves. And... And if you've ever been sailing for a long enough time, when you get on the land, you kind of walk like that too. You know what I mean? You gotta get your land legs back. Okay, so part of of growing is uh, getting adjusted to the journey. Imagine as a sailor learning the daily routines, learning your crew, learning your ship, learning your job. You might have to get stronger that first day you're hauling line to, to hoist the sails. You're not as strong and you haven't done it in a while. You've got to build that muscle back up. You've got to learn the seas. Maybe you're sailing to somewhere you've never been before. You've got to learn what the topography is like. You've got to learn what the sea is like, what the mountains are like, so you can navigate. You've got to learn what the stars look like in that region. You've always got to be growing. And you don't just grow for the journey. You end up getting to the end of the journey and you realize you're not the same person you were when you started the journey, you've grown. And I think that's what God does with us. He shapes us by the journey. He grows us by experience. Yes, God has plans and purposes, and he has ends in this world. But everybody, listen, this is, this is so important. God can do all that without us. God is fully capable of doing whatever he wants in this world without you, without me. 
God doesn't need Northminster. Okay? God doesn't need anything. But that means, are you with me? That God wants you. God doesn't need you, but that means he purposefully chooses to use you and bring you along for the journey. Why? Because you're so great? Because I'm so skilled that God is like, I don't know what I would do without him or her. No, God brings you on the journey because God cares about crafting you as a person. God cares about growing you through the journey. He's not just working on his mission. He's working on us. He's not so task-oriented. Part of his task, part of his priority with us is shaping who we are. Helping us get our sea legs, get stronger. Teach us who he is and who we are. So to help us think about that today, I want to wrestle with two biblical images that I I think are are just helpful in thinking about this. The first is produce. It's fruit. There's this image that happens a lot in the Bible that we are supposed to produce fruit. There's fruit of the Spirit. So there's certain fruits we're supposed to be producing. And Jesus says, well, he's the vine, we are the branches. And so we're supposed to be producing fruit. So what God does is he produces in us. Here's how Paul talks about it in Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand and we journey in hope to the glory of God. So here's how Paul says it to start. He's like, this is, this is not about getting saved. You're saved. You're already justified. You already have peace. We're not talking about getting your salvation. We're talking about rejoicing in the journey now. Now here's how he continues. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Does that sound crazy to anybody else? We rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into the hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So how can you rejoice in suffering? Well, what you understand is that God is using the suffering. I don't think this text is saying, I have trouble saying that God makes us suffer. But I think God doesn't waste our suffering. Okay, our suffering produces something in us. And here's the sequence. Paul lays it out. Suffering produces endurance. Okay, you suffer for long enough, you get endurance. Endurance produces character. Okay, so that endurance that you start to build actually starts to build into your character. Into who you are, your ability to withstand. You get stronger because of the endurance. And that endurance turns into hope. And hope in the Bible is this deep-rooted security that I'm okay with God and that everything's going to work out okay and so that I can walk in faith because I'm sure. And in the Bible, hope is particularly tied to knowing how the end works. That I know God wins in the end, and so whatever happens, I know how it's going to end up. Okay, so, so endurance... Suffering leads to endurance, needs to character, needs to hope. Now, let me just say to you, little sidebar here. If you are suffering right now and you feel hopeless, maybe you're just on an earlier part of that journey, right? Maybe you just are still back in the endurance phase. Or here's what I find. A lot of Christians have trouble with the character piece. 
Okay? They can suffer and they can even endure, but when it actually comes to building their character through the suffering, well, then they pout and they whine and they don't actually grow in character. And then they wonder why they feel hopeless. Well, there's a process here. Maybe you've missed a step in the process. For Paul, suffering is a tool that God uses to produce something in us, to move us towards hope. So image number one is this image of God producing in us. Plant, and we could, we could play with this for a while, right? That God plants in us, that God prunes us, that God reaps what is sown, that there's fruit that God is expecting us to produce. Um, but for right now, just, just hold on to that image for a moment. That in your life, when you go through challenges, when you journey through this life, when you suffer, when you have to endure, that God is actually producing something in you. He's not wasting your suffering, but he's actually producing something in you that then comes out of you in the fruits of your life. Now, to the second image and the one I really want to dwell on is the image that God is actually shaping us with his hands. This intentional action of God to to build us, to mold us, to make us. It's the image of the potter and the clay. Isaiah 64, 8 says, But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay. You are our potter. We are the work of your hand. The image is that God is actually picking you up and shaping you. By the way, this is how people are created in the beginning. In Genesis, God speaks his voice and makes everything in the world, except when it comes to making Adam. What does he do? He bends over. He plays in the dirt. It's only one handmade creation, and that's people. And the idea is that God is continuing to play in the dirt. He is continuing to develop you. Here's how Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. So we who, are, who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Here's what Paul says. We've got this treasure. And the treasure is this image of jars of clay. And he's saying the same way that a potter has to press on the clay, that, that that's how God is with us, that he's pressing us. He's molding us. He is shaping us. And yeah, it, it hurts sometimes, it is hard, but, but God is saying, you know, even though you feel, Paul's writing here, even though you feel afflicted, you're not totally crushed. You feel perplexed, but you're not in despair. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken, we're not alone. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. In other words, what we understand is even when it's hard, God is pressing and pushing and molding us. Now, to really understand this image, you have to understand a little bit about pottery in the ancient world. Uh, In Israel, there's not a lot of wood. The wood that they have is uh, a lot of olive wood. Olive wood is not big pieces. It kind of grows everywhere, and it's very soft. That's why you can get carved nativity sets of olive wood. But it doesn't really work a lot for any kind of cooking, for any kind of taking care of stuff. It splits apart. 
Um, and so there's not a lot of metal in Israel either, but there's a ton of clay. So this was very common that they'd have to make pottery and then shape it, and then they'd have to bake it so that it would harden. Israel also had a lot of rules about kosher eating. Some of those rules, had, a lot of them had to do with what you ate, but also your utensils were important. Okay, the idea was if you ate on a wood bowl, the bowl would actually maintain whatever you cooked in it. And so you could never totally ceremonially clean this bowl. But pottery, it was said, you could clean. And so they would make pottery and they would use pottery utensils. That's that's just what they had to use. You You could wash it ceremonially and again and again and again use it. And so they would make all this different pottery and, and lampstands and pots. It could be decorated so, um, you know, you could get the latest styles of pottery. Okay, kind of like if I opened your cabinets and then I opened, like, your grandparents' cabinets. Like, I could kind of date the dishes, right? Um, it was like that. You could actually, like, get styles of dishes and you could have, um, you know, different... Uh, Different designs, maybe in right now would be a Philistine design, as you see Philistine designs, and then maybe later an Egyptian design. Um, and so pottery was, uh, was prevalent, it was easy to make, and it kind of captured the style. This is so important for archaeology, because, uh, because of the clay and the way it is, it's so dry over there that that clay, once it gets thrown out, those pots, they stay. And a lot of times what they would do is they would actually build up their towns so they were more defensible. So um, you would just take, if there was a, a, a war, a battle, or there was an earthquake that kind of destroyed your town, you typically would fill it in and then build on top of it. You'd fill it in and build on top of it. So if you go to Jerusalem today, uh, when you walk around, you're, you're normally like 15 to 20 feet above the Jerusalem of Jesus. Only occasionally do you get all the way down because the city's been built up. And what they would do is they would use their old pottery as filling. Right? So if a pot broke or if a pot, um, uh, yeah, you didn't like it anymore, you wanted to get a new one, that's out of style now, you'd fill it. So now archaeologists can go back and really date the pottery and also can tell in certain cities when Philistine influence came in because the Philistine pots or Egyptian or Babylonian or whatever influence you can read the pottery to tell you sort of what's been happening in the area. Um, now, what's cool about that is that they now, because of all that pottery and it stays, they actually find pottery all the time. Let's see how I do here. They actually find pottery all the time um, that is still in the ground and still intact. So this, I, I bought this at an antique dealer in Jerusalem. Uh, this is a lamp, and it's about a first century lamp, about the time of Jesus. You can still see the black uh, from where uh, a wick would have stood out, oil would have been in here, and then you could light it, and then you could use it. And it was, most of them were just handheld like this. They weren't real big lamps. This is pretty common. Okay, And it's pretty simple. The older lamps are just sort of round. Uh, uh, newer lamps than this, they get more stylized. So you could date based on the pottery. So this is about a first century found in Jerusalem from about the time of Jesus uh, lamp. And it's actually interesting enough, probably not fake, because there is just so much of it in the ground. They find it when they dig up to like put their sheds up, okay, and they do a construction. It's not even just for uh, uh, archaeology. And then there's this other piece I bought. This is a Canaanite jug, okay? This is Canaanite. This is predates the time of David. 
this little jug found in the area of Jericho um, that uh, you can still sort of see the dust in it. And it's a whole piece. Um, what's really cool of this piece, I'll leave these out. You can come see them afterwards. What's really cool about this is um, if you look where the handle gets pressed in, you can still kind of see the fingerprint of the potter. Okay, the fingerprint of the potter maintains over all these years. Okay, so you can see how pottery was so important to them. And it's so valuable for archaeologists because they can kind of tell where some of this stuff was and how it was made and what the years were and what the influences were. Now, to make pottery, this is why I need a drop cloth and an apron. This is not my apron either. I found this downstairs. They want, they want rumors. And I am not good at this. So, okay. So what you would do is you'd have to get the clay wet and pliable. Okay. And that way you could make it into what you wanted to make it in. Okay. So a lot of times it's kind of hard in the ground. You'd have to work it. I worked and flattened this out before church. But what they would do is then be able to shape it into whatever they were going to make it into. Okay, so you could make it. You'd have to make it very pliable. And then you could start making it into its own lampstand, right? So uh, you could make it, fix it. You could adorn it with smaller pieces. But here's what the Bible is saying. What I'm doing right now, this is what God does with you. Okay, that when God is pressing you, and it feels like pressure. And you don't like it. Right? I don't like when God works me over so that I'm relaxed enough to be willing to do what he calls me to do. Right? Sometimes it hurts to be pressed. But this is what God does. The other way they would do it is on a pottery wheel. Believe it or not, pottery wheels are really, really old. They have found pottery wheels somewhere dating from somewhere about 4,000 B.C. in the area of Israel. Okay? They were not electric like the one I'm about to use. Right? And they were used by the very elite. Um, they were used by the very elite, but then later, about 1500 BC, they became popular and they have been used ever since. And, and, and somebody would have to turn it for you, um, but you could put a pot on and then you could start to turn it on and actually turn the wheel. I'm only going to do this for a second because uh, I, I, went, I went and bought a little kid's version of this. Okay, so it's plastic and it is loud as all get outs. Okay, but, but as I do this, what I want you to imagine is, this is what God does to you in your life. God takes you and he starts to mold you, he starts to work you over, and then he spins you. And he shapes you. He turns you. So, when you feel all turned around, okay, when you feel pressed, when you feel crushed, when you feel like things are really falling apart, maybe God's just working on you, right? When you feel like you can't go on, maybe, maybe God's got you right where you need to be. This, this is the image, though. I want you to imagine that in your life, through jobs, through kids, through disasters, through tragedies, some of you for 30 years, some of you for over 100 years. God has been pressing and pushing and molding you. 
Okay, that God's been making you holy. That God's been making you hopeful. That God's been shaping you into something useful. That you're just this lump of clay until God starts working you to where you can hold something or do something or be something. And God makes you to be a beautiful testimony to who he is. Right? One of the amazing things about this pottery, and you, you should look at this juglet before you leave, to see the fingerprint of a potter several thousand years later. The prayer is that but when you get to the end of your life, we're going to see all these fingerprints of all these places where God pressed you and formed you and made you. And I know it's hard sometimes. I know we don't always know what God's doing and that makes it so difficult. But when you feel pressed, when you feel crushed, when you feel bent out of shape, when you feel dizzy, when you feel spun around, maybe God's just working on you. Maybe God's way more concerned with forming you than he is getting to the destination. He'll make it to the destination. Maybe he's forming and shaping you. What if we took seriously this idea that God is doing this? God's hands are getting dirty as he is making and forming you. I needed a little physical reminder of this. So can I get my people who are helping me to, uh, to start passing out? You guys got one over there. So what I'm going to do, for every person here, uh, I'm going to give you a prayer and a a piece of paper and a thing of Play-Doh. Okay? I'm going to give you a piece of Play-Doh and a little prayer. And what I'm going to ask you to do, we're going to actually pray this. So get your Play-Doh. When you get your Play-Doh, open it if you can. I get stuck sometimes. So get a Play-Doh. Make sure you have a Play-Doh and a prayer. You guys got a Play-Doh and a prayer? Everybody got a prayer and a Play-Doh? Okay, does everybody got one? Are we close? Anybody missed? Get your Play-Doh out. And what I want you to do this week is I want you to put your Play-Doh somewhere. And this prayer is somewhere where you're going to see it. It's got to be on the counter, by the door. I don't know where it's got to be. In the glove or in your uh, um, cup holder in your car. Anybody missing? Everybody got one? All right, take out your Play-Doh and, and make a little jug or a little lamp. Do not eat it. No, I should have given this group edible plate. All right. And what I put together is a little prayer of the potter from, uh, to the potter from the clay. So this week, I want you to stop a couple times a day, get out your Play-Doh and pray this prayer that we're going to pray together. Everybody ready? Lord, you are the potter. I am the clay. You press me and shape me. I confess that I don't always like the pressure. I don't always like the cutting and the pushing. Remind me that your hands are shaping me in love. May I embrace the work of your hands. May I embrace the heat of the kiln's flames that completes the work. When I am put through the fire like a vessel in a kiln, Let me see it as transformation, not punishment. I want to be pliable in your hands. Soften my heart 
and soften my will so that I am movable like clay in your hands. Give me the strength to be open to your artistic vision. Help me to trust the slow process and know that the final process will be perfect, unrepeatable, and unique, as is your plan for me. Mold me, make me, fill me, and use me. I am yours, Lord. May my life be covered in your fingerprints. Amen. Encourage you this week to pray that prayer a couple times a day. Get out your Play-Doh. Let it be a reminder of God's work in your life. Now let's sing together. Have thine own way.